Our passage this morning comes from Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says of these verses we are going to consider this morning, the magnificence and exalted style of these verses may be unrivaled in all of Pauline literature, which is quite impressive. And when you consider that most scholars, both those who are Christians and non-Christians, consider the Apostle Paul to have the greatest mastery of the Greek language of any of the documents that we have today, then it's quite possible that the verses we read today are the most magnificent and exalted in anything that we have from antiquity. No pressure in teaching that with that understanding this week. And also with the understanding that I will not be able to do justice to the depth that is in these passages this morning. But my hope is to bring out the hope that is ours because of the promises of God for his people from this passage. Romans 8, begin our reading in verse 28. We'll continue through verse 39. Hear the word of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we come with thanksgiving. We come with thanksgiving that you have loved us and have given us a word a word that reveals to us uh, what we can know about you, a word that reveals to us what you have done for us and the promises that are before us. I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds, that we may grasp the incredible truths that are present here in this passage. But more than that, that you might open our hearts, that we may embrace and experience your grace, which oozes throughout it. Lord, bring comfort and transformation through this time 
we commit ourselves to your word. May we hear your spirit speak to us, applying it. May we be changed to become more like Christ. We pray in the name of our Redeemer and King, Jesus. Amen. In his helpful little book called Christian Basics, John Stott writes these words. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. He who knows not and knows he knows not is simple. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. He who knows and knows that he knows is a wise man. Follow him. Now, this almost sounds like a a riddle that needs to be solved, but it's actually an ancient Arabian proverb. Uh, And the meaning behind it is, is basically this, that there are things that we know and there are things that we don't know, and it is the, the wise man who knows the difference and then who pursues understanding. And it's important that we recognize that because in the passage that we looked at last week in Romans 8, Paul spoke about things that we don't necessarily understand. He was talking about things that are so complex, so grandiose, that our understanding is, is stumped. And we can become so stupefied that we don't even know how or what to pray. But at the same time, in our lack of understanding, Paul wants us to know this, is that the Holy Spirit, who is at work within all of God's people, takes our lack of knowing of what to pray or how to pray, the the groans and the grunts and just the whatever noises come out of us at times of frustration or times of discouragement, He's able to take those things and translate them and then turns them into a prayer, and the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. And so even in our lack of knowledge, God is at work within his people. But now Paul turns his attention to things that we can know, things that we should know here at the end of Romans chapter 8. And the things that he talks about here form a foundation for our faith, and it is this foundation that serves as the basis of our confidence to face whatever life throws at us. And essentially what Paul says we need to know in these, these, this passage is this, is that God is working out all things together for the good of his people, the people that he is for. And we, we see that from two of the key verses. Verse 28, God is working out all things And then again in verse 31, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And the rest of that is just kind of unfolding and applying the truth that these statements and this question, these questions pose to us. But if you're thinking, the inevitable question would be this, how do I know if God is for me? I mean, I can buy the premise, if God is for us, and in the way that it's written, it would imply its sense, but even if we take it at the way that it's translated in English, if God is for us, whatever thing that follows may be true, but how do we know that God is for us? How do we know if God is, is for us? And to know that, we look back at the beginning of the passage, verses 28 through 30. Notice as it begins, 
that Paul says we know that God is working all things together for the good. It's not that all things are good, but that he is working all things together, things that are good, things that are challenging, everything that we experience in this life, God is using and knitting them together for the good. But it's not a universal promise. It's not that God is working out everything, everything will be fine for everybody, everybody will ultimately experience joy and happiness in this life and the next. The promise is conditional, and it's conditioned upon those whom God is for. And he tells us in that, this, that passage who it is that he's for. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Those are two points, not two categories of people that some love God and some are called according to his purpose, but it is shorthand, two points of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be among the people of God, that you love God and that you see your life in line with his purpose. Now, even if we understand that, and if we're all in agreement so far, that begs yet another question. What is God's purpose? Now, some might look at that quickly and say, well, it just means that we obey, we do what God tells us to do, we live our lives in the way that God wants us to live, and that certainly is true. But it's not answering the question of what is God's purpose. See, in obedience to God's commands and his law, is the way that we ought to live, but it doesn't tell us the path that we are to walk. God's law is good. God's law is holy. God's law is instructive. It reflects aspects of his being, of his holiness, of his goodness, but it doesn't tell us what he's about. He's not, the law is not his purpose. The law is the means to instruct us as we walk according to his purpose, as we walk walk in line with his purpose. And so we're still left with the question, what is the purpose of God and and how am I to live if I'm to align my life with the purpose of God? Before we ask that question, I'm going to ask another question. We're going to take a step back and I'm going to, this will be somewhat interactive this morning. I'm going to ask a question and allow you to answer it. Those of you who've grown up Presbyterian, you have an advantage here. What is the primary purpose of man? And the answer is... All right, it sounded kind of cacophony there, but I'll, I will assume every one of you got that right. Yes, the primary purpose, or for those of you like the old language, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, the second question that pertains more specifically to our text, what then is the primary purpose of God? And the answer is the primary purpose of God is to glorify God and to enjoy himself forever. Now, that may seem odd to your ears, but think about it for a moment. If there was something else that God was to glorify, well, then something else is more glorious than God. Then God himself would not be God. He would not be the all-glorious. And if God was going to live for the joy of something else, then something else is greater than God is. And then that would be what is ultimate. Now, no doubt God takes delight in that which he has created. He takes delight mostly in humanity that he has created after his own image. But the delight that he has is seeing his own image and seeing his own work 
because God is above all things. And so God's primary purpose is to glorify himself and to enjoy the glory that he has created, the glory that he radiates. And what we're told from all of the scriptures is this, is that as part of God's way of glorifying himself, which may seem arrogant, but what else would God glorify? God has, is calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation around the world, people who had rebelled against him, but he is bringing them back to himself, revealing himself to them that people may see his glory and respond to that and so glorify him. And to this end, he created a country, a nation, a people, the people of Israel, through whom he would bless the earth. And through that blessing, he would call people from every nation to him. And that continues as those who have responded to that gift of Jesus Christ now are God's people, and we too continue that through engaging in global mission and personal evangelism. In other words, as we respond to God's glory by relating to him and then sharing the good news, helping people to see the glory of God that is perfectly presented to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in shorthand is that to be living according to God's purpose, those who are called according to this purpose, is to live our lives in line with God's mission on this earth. And that applies in all ways. It applies to our global mission efforts, in which it's not a matter of some are called and others are not. All are to be participants if you are in Christ. Some will go. Others don't just stay, but they send and support, and others use different talents and mobilize people, train them up, and and send them out. But even more than that, every career, every job that we do is done in a way that reflects God's nature, God's glory, and contributes to God's great commission. The question for us is, how does what I do, how what, what you do, how, does, how do I do that to the glory of God? How does that part, uh, contribute to God's ongoing mission? And we realign ourselves and continually make sure that our lives are lived out in line with the purpose that God has for his people. That's what it means to be called according to his purpose. And of course, God is going to be for those who are called according to his purpose, who are in line with his purpose, and who are living to carry out his purpose. Of course, he's going to be for such a people. And he's for those who love him, which we know according to scripture. John tells us very clearly that we love because he first loved us, And we see in this passage, God demonstrate his love. He points back to the gospel, talking about his son that he has given for us, which is the perfect demonstration of his love for us. And so it's a matter of loving God and getting our lives in, in line with God's mission. According to legend, a 
civilian concerned about the lingering Civil War approached President Abraham Lincoln. And he said, Mr. President, I'm, I'm praying that God would be on our side. To which Lincoln reportedly responded, I am not the least concerned whether God is on our side. I'm concerned that I am on God's side. It's important that we recognize that much of our troubles and our frustrations in this life come because we turn our attention and we labor and we spend our time in prayer trying to get God in line with our purposes rather than realigning ourselves with God's purposes, rather than, as Lincoln said, making sure that our lives are on God's side. And we see here Paul saying God is for those who are on his side, those who are called according to his purpose. And then he says something more. He offers that dreaded word predestination. We see that here in our text, that those he predestined. And he goes on and he elaborates on that predestination with what theologians refer to as, as the, the, golden, the golden chain of salvation. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Those are descriptions of what God has done in the work of our salvation. For those who are concerned about this whole predestination issue, first of all, I, I will let you know in advance so that you aren't sweating it as much as I would love to. I'm not going to talk about the doctrine of predestination this morning. That's uh, not only a message, but several messages in itself. But in the context of what is here in this passage, it shouldn't be surprising to us that God has predestined and that those who he had predestined, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of their son. And then the golden chain of salvation is how he accomplishes that. The fact that God has predestined and then sees the outcome that those whom he predestines and calls will become more and more like Christ should be no more surprising than if you know an architect who draws out his blueprints and then superintends the, the building of the structure. And then at the end, the building comes out looking exactly the way he designed it in the first place. I mean, who's going to be surprised with that? Any of you have ever built a home, you certainly hope that your architect is going to look like it, uh, he said that it was going to in the front end. And yet we struggle with this whole idea that God should have some say and that God would put part of the design and that what he has predestined would come out to the end. But the promise is for us. God, who initiated our salvation, he is the one who is at work. And what he has said is those who belong to him will ultimately become more and more like Christ, the son whom he loves. And so, of course, God is for those who are like Jesus. God is for those that he has chosen. God, he is for those that he is in work in. And so how do we know if God is for us? is because if you believe and you're trusting in Christ, it's because God is for you, because God has called you, because God is at work in you. All of these things are evidence of the fact that God is for you. Now, Paul takes that foundation and his statement says, what shall we say to this? 
if God is for us, who can be against us? And note that's one of the first of a series of rhetorical questions that he asks throughout the rest of this passage. In other words, if God is for us, there are certain things that are true. And he asks the rhetorical question, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, if you think about it, the answer is any number of people. Other people are against those who belong to God. Sometimes because they're against God, they don't like his ways in the world, and so they oppress and they persecute. And we see believers throughout the world that are persecuted uh, uh, every day. Sometimes it might be a little bit closer to home. If you grew up in a home that was a non-believing home and then you became a believer, it may be that your family has difficulty with your newfound faith in the way that you choose to live your life. If you came to faith not as a child but later as a teenager or as an adult, you had certain things in common with your friends. And part of that may be a lifestyle that's inconsistent with the way that God says that he lives. And so if you came to faith and now you're aligning your life to what God's calling is, you no longer have the same values and you no longer have the same practices and the same hobbies that you might have had before. And the friends that you had before may be against or not in favor of this new faith that you have. They want the old friend back. They want the one who they miss. And so they are not happy they are against this faith that you might have. And it may be that if you grew up more of a nominal faith and you've come to be amazed at the love of God for you and you respond and you talk about Jesus, some who even profess the name of Christians get a little uptight when people talk too much about Jesus. And so there could be any number of people that would be against you. And that's just in general. And then Christians experience the same kind of opposition that everybody else does. Sometimes Christians are opposed because their friends and the people around them are jerks. And sometimes Christians are opposed by people around them because the Christian is a jerk. And so the question is out there, okay, if God is for you, who can be against you? And the answer that we could offer quite honestly is any number of other people. But then here's the gospel truth. And one of the things that is amazing about this passage is with each of these rhetorical questions, God gives us a gospel truth that he roots us in. It's always the answer. And the gospel truth that he says after who can be against you is this. He has given us his son. In other words, God is for you. And the evidence of that is that he has given his son for you. And then Paul asked another rhetorical question related to that. And if he has given us his son, how will he not also with him give us all things? In other words, if he's given us his son, what is there that God isn't going to give us? Now, I recognize that that concept is uncomfortable for some people. There are certainly some people that are good givers, and there are some people who are good receivers, and there are some people who are poor givers, and then there are people who are poor receivers. In other words, when they get something good, they don't really know how to respond. And I think a lot of Christians are this way, at least in our relationship with God, especially in light of such a grandiose promise as Paul is implying here with this question. If he's given us his son, how much, what is it that he won't give you? Because there's a lot of people that would look at this and say, if he's given us something this great, how could I possibly ask for anything else? I mean, 
it, it would seem to suggest that I'm not grateful, not thankful for all the stuff he's already given me. I mean, he's given me this and I want this. And so we become uncomfortable with that. But what Paul is saying here is totally the opposite. He's saying that the gift of giving his son is the demonstration of the unending grace that God dispenses toward those who are his. Think about it this way. Imagine that a luxury car dealer somewhere in the area is going to have a 10 or 20 year anniversary celebration. Business has been good, they wanna celebrate, they wanna celebrate with the community. And so what they're going to do is they're going to hold a raffle and give away the luxury car. You decide what that would be, you know? Could be a Bentley, Lamborghini, whatever. You, you fill in the blank, whatever the car is going to be. And you figure, why not? You pay the buck or two and you buy the raffle ticket just for fun and drop it in the barrel and go home, really don't think anything about it. And then a couple weeks later, you get a phone call. Your ticket was drawn out of the barrel. You have won this luxury car, a car that you would never buy on your own, maybe not even be able to afford. But now you won. And they were calling to let you know not only that you won, but they want you to come down to the dealer, you know, some photo ops and put it in the paper, and it's also a promotional uh, thing, and to pick up your car, take it home. So you drive your beat-up old Toyota, park it someplace not visible in the parking lot, and you walk into the showroom, and the owner sees you there, and you see the car that is now set apart for you, and the owner takes you over that, shakes your hand, and starts pointing out all the different features that this car has. Tells you to sit in the driver's seat. You smell that new car smell. It's time to sign the papers, get the title, and so you go sign everything you need to sign. And then, you know, you're kind of tired of the op, photo ops. Things are draining. You're ready to go home. And so you ask the owner for the keys. Keys? We're not giving you any keys. But I thought this was my car. What is your car? Look, we just signed the papers. It's yours. Title's yours. Car is yours. But keys, we're not giving you any keys. I mean, what a ridiculous thing it would be. If somebody has given you a luxury car like that and is celebrating with you, what are keys to be given to you if they've already given you that gift? And the same thing is true for our perspective. When we are stand amazed at the grace and the love of God to give us his own son, He's not going to begrudge us anything else that we need in this life or things that are going to bring us joy if they will also bring us benefit if they are in line with his purpose for us and for his mission. There is nothing that we are going to need that God is going to deny. And that's what Paul is saying in response to the fact that God is for us, even if there are other people who might be against us. D.L. Moody was reportedly, had reportedly said it this way, if Tiffany's gave me a diamond, no doubt they would also give me something to carry it home with. God has given you his own son. And every benefit that is his in him, he's not going to begrudge you the things that you need 
to live this life in a way that is going to glorify him. And so there may be others that are against you. But it's not only others who might be against you. There's another who is probably your biggest critic, and that's yourself. Sometimes we are against ourselves, perhaps especially when we most want to do what is good and what is right. Because no one knows better than you that you are not the person that you present yourself to be. No one knows better than you, you are not the person that you want to be. No one knows better than you, you are not the person you hope to be. Now, we may behave and practice sincerely in many, many good ways, but we are very aware of our own sin, and we are very sensitive about it. That's why some reject it when others point it out in their lives, and it's why others find grace so difficult. Because we know of this great promise, but then you look at your own life and you think of all the ways in which you fail and all the ways in which you are weak, and you just try to be quiet and be unnoticed and live with that sense of guilt, hoping that somehow it will be lifted from you. So who can be against us if God is for us? Well, others and ourselves. But just as God has answered that there are others that might be against you, he answers the issue that we might have to be against ourselves. And he said, it's God who justifies. If God has justified you, which means he has declared you righteous because the penalty of your failures has been put on Jesus Christ, whom God has given us, he has declared you not only not guilty, but he's declared you righteous. That's a legal declaration of justification. If God has justified you, then who's going to bring a charge? Who is it that's going to say, God, you got this one wrong? God himself is the judge, and God has judged that those whom he has called, those whom he has given to the gift of faith, those who would believe that they are righteous. God is for those that he has justified. And then, which really is amazing, because if you go back to that whole chain of, the golden chain of salvation, those that he justifies, it goes on and says, he also glorified. It's, it's easy to overlook that, but it's really, it's an amazing, amazing promise here. Because the glorification he's talking about is when we become like Jesus. Which if we look in the mirror today, the answer for me is not yet. But when God begins something, because he is sovereign in everything, including our salvation, that what he sets out to do is so certain that Paul writes as if it's past tense. Those he justified, he also glorified. Those who belong have already been declared glorified, even though we're still works in process. And so when you're self-condemning and self-doubting, The answer is not to turn to yourself and to see if you will buck up and do better, but to see the love of God that has been given to those to whom he is for. And yet there is one other that can come against us, and it's life circumstances. Lest we get the idea that being a follower of Jesus Christ is a call to never-ending pleasure and ease. I'm going to ask a question that I gave an answer to a moment ago. It's a true or false question. 
Well, that's a statement, and it's a true or false statement. Here's the statement. There are no Christians anywhere in the world suffering in any way. True or false? False. And it's important that we understand that. Because there are many people who are around who would teach you otherwise and somehow make you think that that means that you're somehow not in line with God's will. That you are not living your life in accordance with God's purpose. If you're suffering in any way, that you must somehow be out of line with what God wants for you in this life. And it, it's, it's interesting how easily we buy into that, either embrace the idea or feel guilty whenever we find ourselves struggling. We can ask a question. What does becoming a Christian change? And in one sense, it changes a lot. You become a new creation. You are born again. There's, there's a lot that changes. In another sense, not a whole lot. If you were heavily in debt the day before you became a Christian, you're probably still heavily in debt the day after you became a Christian. If you were having relational problems with family, children, or parents, or whoever, the day before you became a Christian, they probably are not magically gone the day after you became a Christian. And many wonder that if, if I'm devoted to Jesus and I'm committed and trying to live my life out in line with his purpose, then why doesn't my life work out better for me? I mean, many of us, if we're honest, would say, I signed up for that deal that I saw late night on TV, the one that I would have never-ending prosperity and health. I like that deal. And yet that's not my experience. And the question of why isn't life working out better for me, while it's, it's not a, an entirely wrong question, it's not the question that Paul asks. He asks another question that is more pertinent, and the answer to that question shapes our perspective of the question of why isn't life working out better. The question that Paul asks is this, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? And then he gives a list of things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. And these are broad categories, and we can dial them back a, a little bit. Tribulation is persecution, or just trials, or just difficulties that we have in this life. Distress is, is, is anxiety, that things that cause us to uh, be concerned and worried, persecution, Famine or nakedness are broad categories, but experienced by anybody who's homeless or on the border of being homeless. They, you know, they can't, they have no place to live. They have um, nothing to eat. They have no way to dress and care for themselves. Danger, things are, this is a dangerous world, and sword, um, you know, power. But isn't it interesting that Paul does not say here, none of these things will be in your life, that as followers of Christ, you are exempt from these things. He asks the question, what's going to separate you from the love of God? And then he gives this, this list of things. The reason is because 
As followers of Christ, we experience the same hardships as everyone else. And at times, we may even experience additional difficulties and hardships because we are followers of Christ. That doesn't mean that you're not in line with God's will. But then the gospel truth that Paul adds to this question is this. But none of these things can separate you from the love of God. None of these things are an indication that God is against you. None of these things should suggest that God is not for you. This is the common experience of living in a broken world and even of following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And what Paul then says is this, in verse 37, we are, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds good. But what I do understand it means is this, is that when we are in the midst of difficulties, hardships, suffering, and we fear that God is now against us, that God is not for us, the fact that Paul is saying, in Christ, we are more than conquerors, does say this, that while you may feel beat up and like you are failing, you may actually be winning. Because you may be exactly where God wants you to, because he's to be, to be, because he's taking the good things and the bad things, and he's working those things together and shaping you to be the you that you were supposed to be so that he would be able to use you in his purpose. And so if your goal is to glorify God with your life, to be in line with his purpose, and your suffering is not an indication that God is not for you, it is part of the process that he is shaping you, and even when you feel like you're losing Somehow, God is using you and is at work within you. And the power of the promise of God and of the love of Christ, he continues on in verses 38 and 39. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and then I love this, nor anything else in all creation. In other words, he kind of ran, Paul was on a roll, and then he kind of ran out of metaphors. Gives us a long list. Okay, and anything else you can think of, none of those things can separate you, can separate those that God is for from his love. And Paul takes all these challenges to life and he connects them with gospel theology. So there's some people that are against you. Well, good news, God's for you. Your own sins make you feel guilty. Well, good news, God has justified you by faith in Christ Jesus, whom he has given to you. The circumstances of life seem overwhelming to you. Well, good news. Nothing is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and God uses all things, works them together to make you the you that he has created you to be. And this passage is designed to say to us, whatever you may face in life, the answer to it is already given to you in the gospel. The truth of the sovereign God who is working all things together for your good and for his own glory. We can look at this passage and we can say in short, if God is for you, case closed. Let's pray.
Father, we give thanks to you for this word and pray that you would not only give us understanding, but more than that, that you would grab our hearts, bring comfort for those that are weary and afflicted, give direction for those who are wandering, and give hope when what times we feel hopeless. Lord, draw us near and remind us that we are not forsaken, we will not be forsaken, nor can anyone take us from you. Those who belong to you, those who love you, who are called according to your purpose, you are for, and you are at work, and you will see that to the end. Lord, all praise and glory to you in thanksgiving from us, your church, for and in Christ Jesus. Amen.